Hey everybody, it's Nathaniel Avila reporting from Texoma and I'm here with No Easy Background Ruby. Yep, and I'm going to go on mute now. <laughs> okay. No, hello. Welcome back everybody. I'm sorry for the noise, um, but uh, I do live in a household with children and dogs and cats and that's just my life. So I will let Nathaniel be a... Uh, the main one, you know, to curate since he has less noise than I yep. do. So what, what is this podcast about? What are we doing? Uh, so this is the whole 360. This is part seven um, because, you know, there's so much that we have to cover um, in history. So, of course, this is like the basis of the podcast. It's history. Mm -hmm. And we call it the whole 360 because we want to give the whole view of all history from all cultures that all immigrated into America. And we want to tell all of their stories. Mm -hmm. So we started off with Mexicans in America and we're now on part seven. And this is the year 1950. These are the 1950s yeah. for you. We're going to go into the mid 20th century. Um, starting with, what do you think is the very first thing, event that happened in the 1950s? Um, what happened in the 1950s? So the wars are over. World War II is over. Yeah, but there, there's still a major war that happened in the 1950s. Um, I'm trying to think. In America? Not in America, but America was involved. Oh, um, I'm trying to think. Tell me. It's, Just tell me. So in <laughs> June 1950, the United States entered the Korean War. As, oh, yeah. uh, Vietnam. No, that's that's Vietnam. This Wait, is the Korean sorry. War. Sorry, so Vietnam was when? The 1960s. Okay, so didn't but didn't this lead up to that? Kind of, yeah. Okay, that's why I'm so, Okay, go ahead. So they entered the Korean War um, as part of the United Nations-led coalition supporting South Korea. So thousands of Mexican-Americans served in the conflict from its beginning, and many of them inspired to join the war effort because of their service of their fathers and older brothers in World War II. So Sergeant, Staff Sergeant Joe, Joe Campos from Miami, Arizona... <clears throat> became one of the first soldiers missing in actions of the war after his plane was shot down in June 28, 1950, over the Yellow Sea. A few days later, Florentino Gonzalez from Chicago was part of the first group of prisoners of war. So one Mexican-American soldier, Jesus Rodriguez, later remembered how his harsh upbringing in the United States prepared him for the Korean War. So he stated, I used to pray a lot. Another thing that helped me was that I was street smart from before going into the service. On the streets, I learned how to fight. Something else that helped me survive Korea was, go was that going hungry wasn't new to me and didn't hurt me. So what do you think about that? I think that's a very on point explanation. I mean, that's, that alone right there speaks volumes. Do you think that should have been the case? No. <laughs> oh, why not? Because they should have been treated fairly just like the other soldiers were. The other soldiers, I'm sure, were not going hungry. No, I mean, like, he said that even before he enlisted, like, being, like, right. a Mexican-American in, yeah. in America was, was prepared for the war. And we saw that because we talked about in our last um, episode, we talked about the, um, what is it called? The, the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And we saw how it was not only hard for white Americans, but it was even harder on Mexicans in America because they were blamed for taking jobs and they were <clears throat> basically removed from making any kind of income. Oh, yeah. So, 10 Mexican-Americans were awarded the Medal of Honor for their valor in the Korean War. So, they included Joy R. Joe R. Uh, Baldonado, Victor H. Espinoza, 
Eduardo C. Gomez, Edward Gomez, uh, Ambrosio Guillen, Rodolfo P. Hernandez, Benito Martinez, Eugene Arnold Obregón, Mike C. Peña, and Joseph C. Rodriguez. Finally, General Richard E. Cavazos, born in Kingsville, Texas, became the first Mexican-American four-star general and head of his U.S. Army Forces Command. So what do you think about that? Sorry, you said that they were awarded the Medal of Honors, and then what happened? Um, we had the there's the, the very first Mexican American four star general. Oh, the very first in the Korean War. Yeah, it was during the Korean War, but like it happened during the Korean War, but it was the very first Mexican American four star general ever in American military history. Oh, okay. Well, that's something. Mm-hmm. Because you know, four-star generals is like the very highest rank of the military you can go. Oh, really? When you get four stars, yeah. They're, I would not know that, no. <laughs> yeah, like I think um, there is a five-star general, but that is insanely rare. I think only a very couple of people have ever reached that. And I think one of them was George Washington. So. Mm -hmm. The very first president, what do you know? Mm-hmm. So, let's move on. That's basically it for the Korean War in terms of Mexican-American involvement. So, let's move on to 1951. So, the U.S. government passed Public Law 78, a law which formalized the Bracero Program, which is a temporary work exchange program with Mexico. So, first begun as a scheme to fill wartime labor shortages during World War II, Congress decided to formalize the program as a number of reasons for a number of reasons. So first, new concerns were raised about domestic labor gaps during the Korean War. Second, political concerns were raised about the potential rise of in undocumented immigration if Mexican laborers were not offered a legal pathway to work in the U.S. Third, agricultural employers and associations lobbied hard for the program since they benefited the most from subsidations. So estimates place the annual number of laborers entering the U.S. in the 1950s at around 300,000. And a sufficient, significant number of these braceros were indigenous Mexicans who hardly spoke English. So what do you think about that? I think it's more BS. How so? Sorry, repeat the last part that you said, because I have people in my ear all over the place. No, they basically, they started this thing called the Bracero Program, which is an exchange program for Mexico, where they would just bring in, where they would just bring in Mexican laborers to fill in the gaps for uh, people who left in the Korean War. So. People who what? In the Korean War? Who left to fight in the Korean War. So, because there was families that were left over. Well, they were they left, um, so now somebody needs to fill their place. Right. Mm -hmm. So now they're after they got rid of the Mexicans and took away their jobs from the depression. Now they're bringing Mexicans back into the workforce to fill gaps. Yeah, same thing happened in World War Two. So, okay. but this is like a more formalized version of it. So, basically a trend, a pattern. Mm -hmm. So domestically, the program was controversial. So the U.S. Department of Labor official, the U.S. Department of Labor official overseeing the program called it legalized slavery. So, and some Mexican-Americans believe the program suppressed their own wages. What do you think about that? What do you mean they suppressed their own wages? Okay, let's see what this other guy, this uh, Dolores Huerta person says. So, a prominent, who was a prominent labor organizer who first began her work as an organizer with the Stockton Community Service Organization in the 1950s, where she organized voter registration drives and press for body improvements. So, she was a vehement opposer of the Bracero program and was a key late actor lobbying for its termination. So, yeah. So she was basically seeing through the bullshit and she's like, this is just another formalized thing to try and make it seem like y'all are doing something good, but y'all are really not. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, uh, the Labor Department called it uh, 
legalized slavery. Legalized slavery. Yeah. yeah. Because they weren't getting paid enough, right? I think so, yeah. So, let's move on to another thing called Operation Wetback. So, yeah, Ruby will take this. This is something that happened in 1954. Yep. Um, so, Operation Wetback is the largest mass deportation in U.S. history. Yep. Um, not only did it involve Mexican nationals, but it also involved U.S.-born citizens, which is crazy. Um, so in 1954, 1 1.8 million people, and the estimates vary, of course, but it's uh, they were deported um, by a racist Eisenhower campaign. Um, it was designed to remove Mexicans from U.S. using military tactics. Millions of Mexicans had legally entered through immigration programs in the first half of the 20th century. So they were here legally. Um, Anglos and Border Patrol portrayed Mexican immigrants as dirty, disease-bearing, and irresponsible. Which is funny, if they say disease-bearing. Who were the ones that brought disease over to the Americas again? Um, I think it was you, Ruby. You it was it. the Europeans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so tens of thousands of immigrants were forced into buses, boats, planes, and sent to often unfamiliar areas of Mexico where they had no family or contacts. In, in Texas, 25% of all the deported were crammed onto boats, later compared to slave ships, while others died of sunstroke, disease, and others, other causes while in custody. In Chicago, three planes a week were filled with Chicanos and Mexicanos and were flown to Mexico. Um, here's a fun fact. Mm -hmm. Trump praised this Eisenhower policy that dumped Mexicans into Mexican territory, saying uh, they never came back, he said in a 2015 speech. That's very nice. Um, so Operation Wetback was lawless. It was arbitrary. It was based on a lot of xenophobia and it resulted in sizable large-scale violations of people's rights, mm -hmm. including forced deportation of U.S. citizens. And that's what happened there. Yeah. If you want to learn more about uh, this event, check out the book Migra by Kelly Little Hernandez. And th what I just read was actually um, written by Kelly Little Hernandez. Um, she's a historian, in case anybody wants her information she is a historian um we'll put the sources like we always do in the description mm -hmm. yeah check out migra um if you want to learn more about the entire history of the u.s border patrol and this event so yeah this is operation wetback uh what do you what do you think about this whole situation <laughs> i mean i think it's pretty clear that it violated people's rights you know not only was it you know portrayed that they were all illegal here first of all no one should be claimed as illegal on stolen land might i add but they were claiming that all of these people were illegal when they weren't mm -hmm. most of them were u.s citizens yeah so how would you feel if all of a sudden you being born and raised here in the U.S., they tell you, oh, you got to go back to Europe. Oh, you got to go back to Spain or you got to go back to France, you know, where or your ancestors Australia. come from. Or Australia. You know, or and Canada. You don't know anything about those places or Canada. You don't know. You don't have any family there. You don't have any contacts there. And they're just going to leave you there. And you're just forced to cope with that. That was what the so, whole uh, DACA thing was about, too. Remember that? The what? The DACA yeah. thing? Remember that whole DACA thing that happened, like, in the early days of the Trump administration? Mm, remind me. Oh, right. So, uh, the Dreamers, right? 
that they had been granted, um, you know, legal status here in the U.S. And Trump, you know, wanted to revoke that and make it so that these kids who had never set foot in Mexico and, you know, would be forced to go back over there mm-hmm. with no family, with all their family you know, being over here and them not knowing anything about anything over there. Right. And not to mention the chaos and the violence that awaits them over there in Mexico because of all the cartel bullshit that's going on over there. So mm-hmm. it's basically them moving you from a safe ter- territory to somewhere that's not safe just yeah. because of your background, of your race. Mm-hmm. And... Um Luckily, Congress uh, blocked it from being repealed, and Biden took away that whole thing, and he kept it. So that's that's all well and good. Yeah, the DACA recipients they dodged a bullet with that one. Mm-hmm. So let let's look at a photo here of from Operation Wetback. And also, yeah, so I, I, ho- I was glad you were going to bring up this picture. So this picture is a black and white photo of the Border Patrol holding teenage Mexican immigrant boys at gunpoint in Texas. Um, but let's not forget that it was not only the Border Patrol, but it was also just regular citizens, uh, Anglo citizens, who were taking up arms and trying to force these people to be deported mm-hmm. so what are we what are we looking at here what is this photo of what i just said no i mean it's like describe border it patrol <laughs> just i mean like describe what we're seeing in the photo yeah for people so listening there's the um these teenage boys who are mexican or of mexican descent and they're on the grass and there's three of them and there's two border patrol agents above them standing up holding what does it look like they're I'm not a gun expert but it looks like they're holding uh, shotguns mm-hmm. two shot each one of them has a shotgun in the hand and they have it pointed at their necks yeah that's and what we're looking at it looks like two of them have their shoes off yeah it looks like two well they all look like they were doing something with their shoes so i don't know if they were forcing them to take their shoes off or yeah. something but yeah they all look like they they've been either they've been either asked to like take off their shoes or whatever yeah the one on the far right hand doesn't look very happy no um he looks like he has like his facial expression is kind of pained worrisome mm. alright so what what does this photo make you feel the one in the middle the, the guy in the middle looks like he's just sad you know and it makes me feel sad it makes me feel sad and um, also terrified because in a blink of an eye, something like this could possibly happen again because it's been something that has been spoken about, you know, even recently mm-hmm. um, with the last administration. And to begin with, like, border control, like, is something that a lot of people post about nowadays. And... I hear, you know, a lot of people talking about, oh, we should protect our, we should take care of the U.S. citizens first. We should, you know, America first. And, you know, we can't take care of other people and stuff like that. But it's like, that was what America was born of. Like, literally on the Statue of Liberty, it says, send me your, what does it say? Send me your wheat, send me your poor. Send me your huddled masses, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, that's literally what we are. And we're supposed to be known as the compassionate, uh, Christian-believing Yeah, the GOP, the GOP wanted to, sh- to change that. 
see and that's like the whole basis of america and now you're like no never mind we don't we don't want that now they don't want to take care of us either the citizens yeah and on top of that you know i i see people comparing like the the border crisis right now with like the haitians and they're like oh they want to take care of the haitians but they don't take care of our own veterans that both of those things are bad Mm -hmm. just so you know like neither one of those things is a good thing to not take care of our own veterans and to not take care of other people who are fleeing death and violence with children they're literally carrying children for three months coming to our country seeking asylum you know which is what our country is supposed to be all about yeah they don't want to give us like free education or free late or free uh Universal health care because it's, it's like, it's, so what do you want to do? Oh, I know what y'all want to do. Just make y'all pockets fatter. Just continue to make money off of people. Like, that's the only thing that I see y'all doing. Like, what are y'all doing? Like, not even during a global pandemic could y'all get y'all shit together, you know, so that we could get rid of this virus. We, we wouldn't have even had needed vaccines. Like, I'm not even going to go into that. That's like a whole nother thing. That is true. In the Obama administration, and we've been conditioned, like we have literally been conditioned to just think for ourselves and be selfish and not worry about anybody else, because that's what the government wants. They literally don't want us to care about anybody else but ourselves, and we've been conditioned to to feel that way. Yeah. So I mean, not to say that there's not other, not to say that the other administrations in the past haven't had their own faults. I mean, they all clearly have, mm-hmm. um, and not to blame everything on Trump or anything like that. But this is just stuff that has happened that we're reporting because that's what we do here. This is the history of our nation. And I, I really just wish we didn't have borders at all. I mean, what? what was up with borders back then there were no borders back then and everybody was just coming over from everywhere and everybody was going everywhere i think else. there like, was there was borders. we were then. but i'm saying like back then when we were all trading and there was like you know just trading with one another and the silk road you know was over there in asia yeah but that was still and, somebody's territory though no i know i know that it's another territory i'm saying like I wish that we could all just not worry so much about borders like that and we would all as a whole because we all live on earth would you know come together and trade with one another and be peaceful with one another and we wouldn't have to worry about oh you know you go back to your country or I go back to my country you know like I feel like that would that would be better if we worked as a community versus against one another most of Just Europe is we like don't that. Understand them. Most of Europe is like that. Yeah. Yeah, like the borders are non-existent in, in Europe. Uh, most of it. Neither, and in, I think um, in in Canada just recently they started making it like harder for people to go into Canada. From just and, America um, or from all over. I'm not sure. I feel like I think it's all over, mm. but I'll have to look into that. All right. Well, let's go back to the 1950s. So, electorally, Mexican Americans made small but important strides in the 1950s. So, in Los Angeles, Edward R. Roybal served as the only Mexican American member of the Los Angeles City Council. So, during his time on council, he took a series of important positions, including fighting against the ordinance in which required communists to register with the police opposing the tearing down of the mexican-american neighborhood of chavez ravine uh, to build dodger stadium and pushing for the establishment of fair employment practices commission for the city so in 1954 he also ran for lieutenant governor but he also lost to but he lost to incumbent goodwin knight by more than 10 points so he got beat up pretty good so, despite these gains in political visibility, however, Mexican-American Angelinos also experienced a high-profile incidence of police brutality in the early 1950s, including what is known as Bloody Christmas. 
that sounds like a horror movie. Mm-hmm. So, Bloody Christmas was the name given to a severe beating, beating of seven civilians by members of the Los Angeles Police Department on Christmas 1951. And the attacks, le- which left five Mexican-Americans and two white young men with broken bones, raptured organs, and were properly investigated only after lobbying for the Mexican-American community. So, the internal inquiry by the Los Angeles Chief of Police, William H. Parker, resulted in eight police officers being indicted for their assaults, 54 being transferred, and 39 being suspended. So, what do you think of that? They should have been in jail. (laughs) I mean, that's something that even till today, it's so hard for... A police officer to get prosecuted the same way that anybody else would I mean what their job do you know of that will let you have murdered somebody and still work a politician I don't know of Senate senator (laughs) and the police soldier department (laughs) no I mean that's part of your job you're supposed to kill people soldier yeah I mean that's that's something that even I mean that's something I don't even want to go into and that you know like wars and people dying in wars and people killing in wars those people never fully even recover from stuff like that even at that but I'm specifically saying like not pertaining to war not pertaining to soldiers like if you as a civilian are working a job and then you go out and murder somebody like you're you're gonna go to jail mm-hmm. pretty much right what about that whole thing that happened with um with gates where he paid a teenager for something and he's just and he's still well now we're talking about office. something else I was talking specifically about murders. So you're saying that that what he did was I mean, was uh, was not as bad as murder? I'm not saying it's not as bad. I'm saying we're going to get into a whole other subject. I mean, that is the same thing. I mean, you should definitely not be allowed to be free when you hurt a child in that way or you take a child's innocence in that way. Mm-hmm. You should definitely, like I said, anybody else, they would be in jail. But oh, just yeah. because they hold a high status and they have money, it's a privilege to them. Mm. And that's there's that's just another thing that's wrong in the world. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> so in the courts, Mexican Americans continue to challenge the legal infrastructure of American segregation. So now we have this new thing, segregation, Ruby. Throughout the southeast, throughout the southwest, Mexican Americans were often deliberately excluded from serving as jurors in cases involving Mexican American defendants. So, in 1954, Pete Hernandez, an agricultural worker, was convicted by an all-Anglo jury in Jackson County, Texas, for murder. Hernandez's pro bono legal team, including Gustavo C. Garcia, appealed the ruling, arguing that he was being discriminated against because there were no Mexicans in the jury that convicted him. They argued that Hernandez had the right to be tried by a jury of his peers under the 14th Amendment. The state of Texas denied their claims, but they, they appealed to the United States Supreme Court through a writ of certiorari. So what do you, I see you nodding. What are you thinking? I'm glad that we have that ability, you know, that if a state denies something, the court, the state court denies something, you can always take it to the Supreme Court. Now, you need the money to do that, of course, so mm-hmm. not everybody can do that. Yeah, but the, these uh, attorneys were working for free, so that's how they were able to do it. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. So when you have something like that, you have support like that in your corner, that's great. But just imagine the countless amounts of other cases who don't have somebody working pro bono for them 
that get into uh, a racist judge's court and it gets shut down. Right. You know, then you're left with can't do anything else about it. And you literally could end up going to jail for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So uh, the legal team included Garcia, Carlos Cordina, and John J. Herrera of the League of United Amer United Latin American Citizens, and James Daana and Chris Alderante of the GI Forum, both activist groups for civil rights for Mexican-Americans. These were the first Mexican-American lawyers to represent a defendant before the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard their arguments on January 11, 1954. Chief Justice Earl Warren and the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of Hernandez and required to be he be retried by a jury composed of his peers. And did that happen? And what was the result? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The, what matters is is that they won the Supreme Court appeal. Okay. <laughs> so, what do you think about that? I mean, I'm glad that they won. Mm -hmm. You know, um, this this is the, you know the rule of law, and the rule of law is written so that it can be abided by. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's that's one good thing there. The law worked in our favor. Yeah, and that's pretty much it for the mid twentieth century. So we're gonna go into what is known as the Chicano movement. Oh yeah. Chicano! You know, my uncle, or my cousin, sorry, my cousin has a nickname for me and my mom. He calls us Chicania, like, because he's from Mexico and they spent kind of like most of their years, I guess, in Mexico before coming over here legally mm -hmm. with the rest of my aunt and my uncle and their family. I was born here. You know, so I'm the first of their family that is a Chicana, and so they call me that, Chicania. Okay, so we're going to go into the Chicano movement, which explains all that. So, the Chicano movement blossomed in the 1960s, and the movement had roots in the civil rights struggles that preceded it, adding to the cultural and generational politics of the era. In 1963, in Crystal City, Texas, the mainly Mexican-American migrant community, together with the support of the Teamsters Union and the Political Association of Spanish-Speaking Organizations, an outgrowth of the Viva Kennedy Clubs of 1960s encouraged Mexican-American men and women to pay their poll tax and choose their own candidates. Led by Teamsters business agent and cannery employee Juan Cornejo, Five Mexican-Americans, despite intimidation by the Texas Rangers, won the support of their community, young and old alike. Thanks to the protection provided by the Teamsters and PASO, mobilized for electoral victory. This revolt was covered nationwide and reported in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So this election led Americans outside of the Southwest to take note of America's other minority community as a political force. And we've been raging on since then. Yep. <laughs> and the Texas Rangers, they tried to stop them. They tried to intimidate them. Where have I heard that before? <clears throat> yeah, these Texas Rangers folks, they don't seem very nice. So... Oh, so oh. there's like so many things today like this is why this podcast is really important um because i i think that it's important to know the origins of a lot of these things that we see mm -hmm. today like the dodger stadium for example now the texas rangers you know mm -hmm. it's, it's really important because i feel like if more people knew about that, then they wouldn't feel as supportive. I would hope they wouldn't be as supportive, unless you're racist, of course. Oh. I mean. <laughs> 
But things do need to change because if if you're listening to all of this history, then you're realizing just how racist people were back then and how a lot of the systems that we have today were built on that. Mm-hmm. And there's still a lot of effects from all of that from back then. Because it wasn't too long ago, if you mm-hmm. really think about it. Yeah. And also, uh, the Cleveland Indians changed their names, so they're no longer called that. They're called the Guardians now. You see, and I, and this is what I'm saying, like, it's important. It's important to know and and to be better. Like, when you know better, you can do better. And that should always be a thing for everyone. Everyone should always be looking how to better themselves and to better society as a whole because that in turn will make a better country, that in turn will make a better world. Right. And I hope we all want that, but I know that there are some people who are just stuck in their ways, they're very comfortable with the way that they live, they don't want to change for not even their own personal growth. Mm -hmm. So. So, yeah, the early proponents of the movement, Rodolfo Gonzalez in Denver and Reyes Tejerina in New Mexico, adopted a historical account of the preceding of the preceding 125 years that obscured much of Mexican-American history. So Gonzalez and Tejerina embraced a form of nationalism that was based on the failure of the United States government to live up to the promises that it made in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. So that version of the past did not, on the other hand, take into account the history of those Mexicans who immigrated to the United States. It also gave little attention to the rights of illegal immigrants in the United States in the 1960s. Not surprising since immigration did not have the political significance it was to acquire in the years to come. It was only a decade later when activists embraced the rights of illegal immigrants and helped broaden the focus to include their rights. So the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 set strict quotas on the number of of persons who could legally enter the U.S. from Latin American nations and most New Mexican immigration to the U.S. (coughs) in the 1960s was temporary and short term. Seasonal migration... What about all the other countries? Did they ever limit how many Germans could come over? How many Europeans could come over? Probably not. I don't know. So, uh, seasonal migration between the U.S. and Mexico became illegal in 1965. Nevertheless, the numbers involved with seasonal agriculture kept growing, often forced to resort to undocumented migration. They made money in the U.S., but returned to the villages to spend it. Tend to the family business and participate in extended kinship rituals such as baptisms, weddings, and funerals. So what do you, what do you, what do you think about that? I think y'all should not have been wasting y'all money on fucking dumbass parties. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying this because those are my ancestors, and if y'all would have been spending it, fucking the system however how they were fucking y'all y'all could have probably got somewhere a lot sooner mm-hmm. i could have put it into the community and y'all could have put it into businesses uh, hispanic-owned mexican-owned businesses y'all could have put it into political movements so that y'all had a voice and y'all didn't have to fight so hard but no by all means have weddings that cost all this money have baptisms that are forcing a child into this religion that they know nothing about. I'm sorry, we're going to get off topic, so just continue. I kind of want to attend more quinceañeras. I haven't been to a quinceañera in a while. I want to be... I literally, wanna... you spend like $15,000 for one day of a party. I like, want a party, okay? I want to celebrate a woman turning... a girl turning 15. Okay. And that's okay, but you, do you really want to spend fifteen thousand dollars? I, I didn't say I want to throw it. I said I wanted to attend. No, I know. I'm saying like, 
you attend, that's fine. But I'm saying like this whole, how do I say, conditioning that we have been placed under that we need to have a party. We need to have a wedding party. We need to have a baptism party. Like We need to party, 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 party. Really, it's just an excuse for y'all to drink and get drunk. We already know that. You can just do that without spending $15,000. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes parties are nice. I think you give kind of, kind of dogging on them pretty hard. Parties are nice, but not the ones that cost fifteen thousand to twenty thousand dollars yeah they need to be fifty thousand you don't need that much to have a party honestly. okay like <laughs> we're getting off topic okay miss bridezilla miss bridezilla <laughs> over there i yeah i take all that back trust me <laughs> yeah i know that was mostly just fake for the for the views it uh, was yeah all it's so funny because people will look at it and they really think that i'm like that and it's like dude if I was really like that, Joe would not have been with me. You do <laughs> curse a lot, You do curse a lot. Everybody curses a lot. I don't trust people who don't curse. <laughs> there's something wrong with you if you don't curse, especially in this world. Okay. You gotta let go of some steam somehow. But mm -hmm. um, honestly, like I really wish we wouldn't have. I wouldn't have made Joe spend that much money on the wedding, um, and it was so much anxiety, so much stress. So yeah. If I could take all that back, I would. And I would just go to the court, get married that way, and then have our honeymoon. Because that's worth it. Spend money on a vacation for just you and your husband. You can do that now. I mean, once you guys become empty nesters, you can have a second honeymoon. That's a thing people do. Yeah, we'll see. I'm just really trying to... Um, do better things with my money period you can renew your vows and then go on a second honeymoon you can just like that just like doing it all over again mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway we're not on that topic anyways i think it was more important like i'm not i'm not trying to bash the whole party thing or whatever too much but i'm really saying like back then i wish they would have taken the money that they had and come together as a community and spent it in a way where it would have brought our people a little bit relief, a little bit more relief. Mm -hmm. so and the, it would have set us up for future generations. Mm -hmm. So the most significant union struggle involving Mexican-Americans was the United Farm Workers long strike and boycott armed at, aimed at grape owners in the San Joaquin and Coachella Valleys in the late 1960s. Followed by the campaigns to organize lettuce workers in California and Arizona, uh, farm workers in Texas, and the Orange Grove workers in Florida, which is what this flag comes from. So, from Florida? No, it comes from uh, from the United Farm Workers Long Strike. The United Farm Workers. Mm -hmm. so, this is the Mexican American flag, right? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So that's when this flag was first adopted. So, the most prominent civil rights organization of the Mexican-American community is the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, founded in 1968. Although modeled after the NAACP Legal Defense Educational Fund, uh, MALDEF was, has also taken many of the functions of other organizations, including political advocacy and training of local leaders. So instead, when the movement dealt with political problems, most activists focused on the most immediate issues confront, confronting Mexican-Americans, unequal educational and employment opportunities, political disenfranchisement, and police brutality. In the heady days of the late 1960s, when the student movement was active around the globe, the Chicano movement brought about more or less spontaneous actions such as mass walkouts by high school students in Denver and East LA in 1968. So the movement was particularly long at a college level where activists formed Mecha. Um, I can't read that. El Movi Movimiento Estudiantil. El Movimiento? Yeah. Chicano de Aslan. Which promoted 
Mexico was promoted Chicano studies programs and generalized nationalist agenda. <clears throat> so the student movement produced a generation of future political leaders, including Richard Alatorre and Cruz Bustamante in California. All right. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, so what do you think about all that? I think it's what we should have been doing a long time ago. Um, we should have been having, and I know that there were, you know, some activism and some activists working in prior years, but we need everyone, mm -hmm. honestly. We need everyone. We need uh, it passed down to generation and generation, just like um, African Americans, you know, and, and, and it's different, of course, it's going to be different for each back, each culture. Um, but we both faced discrimination. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that should have been something that had should have been taught mm -hmm. down to generation after generation that we as human beings, we all have certain rights. And we should be able to detect when those rights are being violated mm -hmm. and we should be able to stand up and say something because the longer that we don't stand up and say something the longer that we keep quiet and we stay in place where they want us to nothing is going to change mm -hmm. so i'm glad that they were doing that um speaking of 1968 i have something to say about what's going on in Mexico, in the country of Mexico at that time, if I may. You may not. <laughs> yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, so the last time that we spoke about what was going on in Mexico in the 19, after World War II and um, up until nine, um, the next 50 years, the party PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional um, was who was over, you know, the government um, for the next 50 years. And I have some information as to how bad things were while they were in power. Um, so in 1968, as a symbol of its growing international status, Mexico City is chosen to host the Olympic Games. Over the course of the year, student protesters stage a number of demonstrations in an attempt to draw international attention to what they see as a lack of social justice mm -hmm. and democracy in Mexico under the PRI government and its current president, Gustavo Diaz Ordaz. On October 2, or 2nd, I should say, on October 2nd, 10 days before the games were to open, Mexican security forces and military troops surround a demonstration at the historic De La... I want to say that right. De La De Loco Plaza and open fire. Though the resulting death and injury toll is concealed by the Mexican government and their allies in Washington, at least 100 people were killed and many others wounded. And guess what? The wow. Olympic Games go ahead as planned. I need so, that Olympics, yeah. man. So that's just a little insight of how corrupt that party was that was currently over the government in Mexico. So you really could not say anything against the government or else they were going to use their, their military to shut you down and mm -hmm. kill you. That's no bueno, Ruby. That's a little bit about that in Mexico. So just so that you guys understand why people would flee Mexico and try to come over to the U.S. in search of a better life because we have democracy over here, supposedly. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and we got to trust in that democracy. We can't be constantly saying that the, uh, the other person cheated when when you lose <laughs> message so some women who worked within the Chicano movement <coughs> felt that participation participants 
who are more worried about other issues such as immigration and solving problems that affected women. This led Chicanas to form the, give me a second, the the National Mexican Women's Commission uh, in 1970. So the National uh, Chicano Mora Moratorium March was also held in Los Angeles in 1970. So La Raza Unida Party campaigns in the early 1970s had the practical effect of defeating Mexican-American Demo uh, Democratic candidates, embittering many activists against the party in the form of nationalism it represented. So, as a result of the Voting Rights Act, Followed by up by intensive political organizing, Mexican-Americans were able to achieve a new degree of political power and representation in Texas and elsewhere in the Southwest. So, <coughs> La Raza Unida Party, headed by Jose Angel Gutierrez of Crystal City, Texas, made startling progress in the poorest regions of the Rio Grande Valley, with its base of operations at Crystal City, Texas in the early 1970s. Spreading for a while to Colorado, Wisconsin, California, Michigan, Oregon, Kansas, Illinois, and several other states. So the party faded in the mid-1970s and held only on only in Crystal City, Texas before collapsing in the early 1980s. So veterans from the party, such as Willie Velasquez, became active in democratic politics and in organizing projects such as the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, which boosted the electoral fortunes of Mexican-American candidates throughout the Southwest. So what do you think of that? Um, I wonder why they disbanded. I mean, I wonder why they didn't continue the work, but I guess it was because there was no one that was interested in continuing the work other than this one guy who continued the work politically, so thanks for that. Yeah. So... Oopsie doodles. So, yep. <laughs> While the UFW suffered severe setbacks in California in 1973 and never established a strong union presence in other states, its struggle propelled Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta into national prominence while providing the foot soldiers who helped increase the visibility of Mexican Americans within the Democratic Party. In California, an elect number of Mexican-American candidates in the 1970s and 80s. So in the late 1970s, tactics were forced, for, has forced growers to recognize the UFW as a bargaining agent for 50,000 field workers in California and Florida. So now Chavez is in the scene. Yeah, we have a Chavez street in downtown Dallas. We have a Julio Cesar Chavez Street that just was, I think that was just recent actually too. It was a couple of years ago. So he's a very prominent figure. Yeah. So what, what do you think about all about uh, Chavez now that he's in, he's in the, in the deal? Um, I mean, he's using the labor though as a bargaining you know because i feel like that's literally the only thing that we have that works in our favor in the u.s at that time mm -hmm. is our you know willingness to work that gruesome hard labor and not get paid at that enough for it so i yeah. mean you got to use what you have like sometimes to make strides yeah and that's pretty much it that that's where we'll end it for today uh so that's basically the end of the chicano movement and next time we will go into the reagan era and the 1990s and the 90s so, so we are not excited about that you're not but excited hopefully it's not as bad as the eisenhower yeah. <laughs> administration yeah so so you're not looking forward to the reagan era well, I know a lot of people um, lost businesses because of Reagan's uh, policies that he implemented during his administration. Oh, yeah. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, so that's pretty much it. What do you think about this entire, uh, what we covered today as a whole with, regarding the mid 20th century and the Chicano movement? So I'm glad um, that people are taking up uh, activism, like I said. I'm glad that there are prominent figures who are leading the way in uh, equal rights for Mexicans in America. I'm not happy about the mass deportation that happened with Operation Wetback. Um, I'm not happy that they continue to portray us as these bad people, even today. Even, you know, during this last administration, we were a bad hombres. We were bad people. And it's like, that's literally, you're literally saying one thing that encompasses a whole race. And what do you call that? Not nice. Oh. (laughs) Well, that isn't nice, but yes. It's not nice either, right? Because there's shit if you want to go into if you really want to be straight up about it there's bad people here in the u.s Mm -hmm. i mean you want to talk about all the freaking killings that have gone on in the u.s and people who are okay with seeing a lynching happen and executions happening out on the street burnings of people on the Mm -hmm. street like we don't do none of that shit but we're the bad guys. Yeah, a lot of the things that happen within what we discuss on this poli- on this podcast has been mostly uh, we have been basically on the uh, receiving end of all the uh, of all the bad stuff and all the stuff that uh, the Mexican Americans would would do would be often in retaliation. Right. Exactly. <coughs> it was. It was nothing. We, we've literally just. It looks like our Mexican ancestors who have been here literally have just been working. Mm -hmm. They literally have just been trying to work and feed their families. Yeah. And it seems like we can't do that in peace. Yeah. We can't have our own culture here. We can't have our own things here. Even though America is based on freedom of religion, you know, freedom of, you know, being yourself. But, oh, my bad. You're supposed to be a specific color to be able to do that freely. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, um, uh, and then also like when a major war breaks out, they're like, okay, we need you guys. Right. You're the best. Yeah. Come, <laughs> and, come help us guys, even though we shit on y'all. And then we come we in, help. we come in, we kick major booty, um, we rack up and all the medals and then mm-hmm. the war is over and then back to business as usual. Yeah. Back to being shit on. Yeah. It seems to be the pattern. So, yeah, um, I'm hoping that everyone that watches this, um, you know, can take some something of history that they didn't know before and um, it helps them to be a better person. Yeah, we are very close to being finished with. uh, I know we're We're getting getting there. So, yeah. So next time we'll talk about the Reagan era and the 90s. Oh, yeah. The the 90s. 90s. Oh yeah. Hopefully we talk, but I, I do hope that there's some cool '70s information that we go into as well. Oh, we already talked about the '70s. We're done with that. I mean, sorry, um, the '80s. Oh yeah, the Reagan era basically encompasses the 1980s. Right. So we, we love the '80s. Love the '80s. So yeah, hopefully well, some good things happen there, speak, and not speak too for much yourself. bad. Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fan of the 1980s as much as some people. I didn't people. mean we as in you and I. I mean like me and the other people who love the 80s. Okay. Which is a lot of people. Just I'm so more of know. a 90s person. <laughs> so. Well, we'll see what we have in the 80s and 90s here to come. Um, and then once we get done with Mexicans in America, hopefully we can go on to the um, culture of the first Americans who were here to begin with when their land was stolen, which are Native Americans. Yeah, but which one? We don't know. Which one? Which tribe? Uh, Who knows? It'll be a mystery. It'll be a mystery, but um, we definitely are going to have someone from a tribe uh, 
come on the show, uh, come on the podcast and um, and talk give, about it. Yeah, yeah, give their history. Mm-hmm. So, because that's super important. Oh yeah. So yeah, that that was uh, the whole 360. That was part seven. We'll see you guys in part eight, where we talk about see the Reagan guys. era in the 90s. See you guys. See you guys for part eight. Part eight. I've been Nathaniel Avila. And I'm Ruby Rodriguez. Signing off. Signing off. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to A Vision Podcast, home of Wacky Talkies, The Kingdom, Evil Exists, and many more.